If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to end our, or conclude our Bible study that we've been in for quite a while. I'm excited about this lesson. Um, Hopefully you'll be as excited as I am when it's all over with. I think it's a good encouraging word. It might be a little bit challenging, a little bit convicting, but what what message isn't, right? We're going to get into some good stuff tonight. Um, For the most part, the book that we've studied, 1 Corinthians, um, has been all about, if you were to summarize it in just a single sentence or a single bullet point, I, I try to do it like this. 1 Corinthians has been about living up to our full potential as members of his body. So not just living up to our full potential, that this book isn't about living your best life and making the most and doing the most for you and for your kingdom. This is about maximizing your role as a member of the body of Christ. So we've heard that phrase a lot throughout this book um, about the body of Christ, about his body, about how we are members of one another. The reason why we named this study his body is because we are are his body. We are the body of Christ. Uh, that's not just a song that we sing. That is the, the, the theme of 1 Corinthians. If there's one book of the Bible that emphasizes the importance of our role in the church, it is 1 Corinthians. Now, uh, we've learned about how we should aspire towards unity. Uh, we've learned about how we should be a model of morality to the world. Uh, we've learned about being equipped with spiritual gifts that we might would work together and uh, as a church send the right kind of signal to the lost world. Uh, We've gotten insight about every angle, uh, practically, of the church community. Uh, We've learned how to conduct ourselves in worship services, how to handle ourselves in business meetings. Uh, We've learned about how we should have good relationships with insiders, as in church members. But we have also learned about how we should have good relationships with those outside the church, those that are outsiders of our community, that, that really it all comes down to relationships, how we relate to each other, how we love each other. That's been a big part of 1 Corinthians, right? Chapter 8. Remember Paul said he would give up meat if that's what it took to win people for Jesus? That's a pretty big, 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 big thing to say he would do, right? 1 Corinthians 13, obviously that is the love chapter. If we have not love, we have nothing. That's what Paul said. So we have uh, brought so much to the surface uh, in this thorough, in this detailed letter. uh, And all of it, all of it is transferable to our day and to our churches. Uh, there's nothing that's from this book that is not still important to us. Um, what we've learned from 1 Corinthians, it's all relevant to us as it was 2,000 years ago. Some of it, you might would say, is too radical for our day. Some of it, you might would think, is not strict as you would, would put things or as you would consider things. But all of it, as we've learned, is inspired. It's the inspired word of God. It's all applicable. It's all preferable, as in it's the preferred way to do things. It's the preferred way for our churches to operate. It's the preferred way for our marriages to operate. It's the preferred way for our lives to all uh, fall in line with, with what God has taught us. It's preferable, and it's absolutely beneficial. Our every generation that this book is, is opened by This book gives us so much insight about how we can maximize our role as members of the body of Christ on an individual basis and, of course, on a collective communal basis. So we have come to the last chapter, which touches on a subject that we haven't heard mentioned a lot in this book. 
Uh, if you're around here, we usually bring up this subject at least a couple times a year because it's hard to, invo- hard to avoid when you read the Bible uh, back and forth, up and down all the time. Um, but, but we have not really talked about this particular subject in this particular book. Um, you might say he saved the best for last. Maybe uh, he's, he's just getting something in just so that he, they, they can't say he didn't talk about it. But, but I think really he concludes the book in a very meaningful way. Um, He's implied this subject throughout the book, but he really focuses on it in the last chapter. So I want to go ahead and hear the Apostle Paul as he concludes this letter. Uh, We're going to read straight through verse 11, and then we're going to spotlight just a a couple of verses after that, because really from that point on, he starts kind of just giving shout outs to different people that they're important to make note of, and we will make note of a few of them, but for the sake of the greater message, we won't read straight through. But the verses we're going to highlight, again, verses 1 through 11, and then there's a little pocket of verses, 13 to 16, and then another one, 21 through 24. The whole chapter is great, but again, I want to focus in on a couple things that God brings out from these particular sections. So let's go ahead and hear God's word tonight. May he bless the reading of it, and more importantly, may he bless our understanding. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, or as he prospers, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, now he's going to make a visit, that's what he's talking about. When I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, then, I will go, then they will go with me. Now I, come, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia right now, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Notice that phrase, that you may send me, because he needs their support. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door, a wide door has opened to me, but there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren." Verse 13, watch, stand, watch and stand fast in the faith. Be brave and be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Acacia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, and that you also submit to such, and to everyone who works and labors with us. Verse 21, The salutation with my own hand, Paul's, as in he's writing this with his own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So let's just jump right into this. We hear Paul talk about a collection in verse number two. That's an offering. I think we understand that, right? Supporting his ministry. So if you highlight or underline, verse two is an important one to to, to, to circle or to make note of. And, And then in verse six, he specifically says, I need you to support me. Literally, that you may send me as in, hey, I need support and I need your support that I might be able to go on on this mission. 
So verse 2, he mentions an offering uh, being laid aside uh, before he even gets there. Verse 6, he mentions that, that he needs the resources that he might go and do his job. Th- then in verse 9, he mentions that there's a door that's open for him. There's a lot of things working against him, but he's got a greater door that God has opened that he is striving to go through. Then we have the mention of people like Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, all who are working alongside of him that he asked them to support as well. And then he calls on them in verse 13 and 14 that they might stand with him and serve with him. You'll notice back in verse number 3 and 4, he says, I don't just want to take your money. I want to take some of you with me. Is that not what it says in verse number three? When I come, whoever you approve by your letters or by your recommendation, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So, hey, I'm not going to Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going to send some of you on that mission. And, hey, if I'm able to go, I'll take you with me. So not only is he asking for our monetary support, but he's asking for our physical volunteering of our time, of our lives. Again, he mentions, verse 13, that we stand with him and be brave and be strong. And, of course, that alludes to our physical participation, right? Be brave as in, hey, I need you to serve with me. I need you to come with me. I need you to do what I'm doing. And then in verse 16, or verse 15, 16, he mentions a group of ministers that he calls them to submit to and he calls them to support and he calls them to labor alongside. So, so I think we get the gist of what he's doing here or we get the idea of what he's talking about here. Paul wants us to know, as members of the church, our mind should always be on its expansion and its growth, as in, hey, there's a work to do. There's a work to do. There's a mission to be a part of uh, that God has called us to be active participants in this work, and we should always be focused on, because as he's writing this chapter, he doesn't give you a chance to catch up. I mean, he just talks about, hey, I want you to give to this. I want you to support me on this. I want you to join me on this. Oh, by the way, not just me, but Timothy. Oh, by the way, not just Timothy, but Apollos, but not just Apollos, but Stephanus, then Priscilla and Aquila. I mean, he doesn't give you a chance to ask any questions, does he? He just keeps saying, I need you to support these people and these people and these people. I need you to join in. I need you to volunteer. I need you to serve. I mean, he assumes that we're already into this, or we're already buying into this. Do, do you get that idea from him? Now, by chapter 16 of a book that's all about serving the church, I think, he, I think it's safe to, that Paul would assume that we've bought in. But, but there might be some of us that haven't bought in yet, which is why this message is so important, I think, that we ought to always have our minds on the expansion of the church, because clearly that's what's on Paul's mind in this chapter. The expansion, the growth, the mission of the church, whether it be our local body or, or whether it be the greater global body, because he doesn't just mention the work that Corinth, he's mentioning the work that's going on in Galatia, the work that's going on in Jerusalem, the work that's going on in Acacia. Uh, he mentions several different works, doesn't he? Because we're all on the same team in the end, right? In this closing passage, he alludes to both our supporting, supporting those who have dedicated their lives and our own efforts in living for the cause. Can we all agree on that? I don't think I'm pulling anything too out of left field there. So after all we've covered in this book, he saves maybe the most powerful message for last on the subject of evangelism and missions. Now, when you hear the word evangelism, you probably think about evangelists, 
Billy Graham, uh, people like that that do crusades and, 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 or maybe local people that you've supported through the years. Uh, but we, we think about evangelism, we think about evangelists, people that have given their lives to preach the gospel. But that's really a narrow understanding of what the word evangelism means. Uh, literally, the definition of evangelism is the cause of spreading the gospel through personal and public witness. The definition of evangelism does not, is not uh, uh, you know, reserved for big platforms instead of in front of big crowds. It's not reserved for preachers in front of an auditorium of people. It's not just people with a microphone on a crusade. That evangelism is the idea that we spread the gospel in a personal and public way. Okay, so we hear the word missions as well. And we think very limited, once again, we think about mission trips. We think about going to some uh, faraway place for a specific short-lived period of time. Uh, but the purpose, uh, of, of the, the purpose of missions is not limited to those things. Uh, and here's what I think really Paul wants to hammer in this last chapter. We are all called to be evangelists. We are always on mission. I mean, he doesn't give you a chance to ask questions. Hey, does this apply to me? Am I supposed to support? Am I supposed to serve? Am I supposed to be open to this? He doesn't give you a chance to say, hey, maybe this isn't for me. He assumes you already understand this. And in case you don't, it's up to people like me to make sure we have it as clear as we can so that we might understand it. Always on all called. That includes you. That we are all called to be evangelists. As in, we are all called to be public and personal witnesses for Jesus. We are all called to be always on mission. Think, about, think back to that definition of evangelism, personal public witness. Our lives are witnessed by people every single day, aren't they? On a personal public basis. Do you think that evangelism is something we turn on and off? Do you think that evangelism is something that only happens when you step up to the platform and a microphone turns on and the lights get bright and the crowd gets quiet? No, right? Evangelism is not just something that happens when you get up in front of a crowd. Evangelism isn't something that happens when you're on a mission trip to an uncharted country. Evangelism in a mission field is something that we are a part of and participants in every single day. It's not a light switch that you turn on but then turn off whenever it's not convenient. Now, I know that's easy for me to say. I'm the one wearing the microphone. I do this, you know, I'm professionally, uh, whatever that means, doing this. But come on, this is, this is true for all of us. We don't say, or we can't say to people, we can't, we, we as Christians, we aren't afforded the luxury to say to somebody when we're, when the, when, when we're not in evangelism mode, oh, well, well, don't listen to me right now. I'm not being a witness right now. Right? I mean, I know I'm a Christian, and I know I can be a witness, but I don't need you to listen to me right now or watch me right now because I'm not being a witness right now, and I don't really feel like being a witness right now. So we can't do that, can we? We are always on mission. We are all called to be evangelists. We, we can't say to them today, well, I'm not really on the mission field right now, but then tomorrow expect them to take us serious when we say, let me tell you about Jesus. Right? This is not how it works. What kind of witness is that? I know this is dramatized and exaggerated example, but we are all evangelists and either we are an evangelist all the time or we are not an evangelist at all. 
We are either on mission all the time or we are on mission none of the time. You, you say, Justin, how are you pulling all that from this text? Well, I'll tell you how I'm pulling this from this text. is because Paul doesn't start the chapter off by saying, you need to witness, you need to share the gospel. He starts out with something that's even more uncomfortable than that. He starts out by talking about how we should all be investing in the work of those that we already recognize as being evangelists and being on the mission field. You see what I'm saying? He starts out by saying, I know that you recognize that me and Timothy and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Stephanus, you recognize that we are on the mission field. But as he begins to teach this text, he begins to say, but you should join as well. But he doesn't start out by saying you should join. He starts out by saying you should support it because that might be more difficult to get us on board with than the actual participation. Because <laughs> when you aim for our wallets, sometimes that hurts more than when you aim for our time. So Paul says in verse number one, I have given orders to the churches of Galatia. Galatia is the country. It's modern day Turkey. I've given orders to the churches in Galatia that there should be a collection. And, and then he details it in verse number two. On the first day of the week, now they, they met on Sundays. That's the first day of the week. But there's also a sense of priority there, right? You're not coming in at the end of the week when you don't have anything left, you're coming in at the beginning of the week. Notice symbolically that means something, doesn't it? That I want you to come in first thing at the first of the week and I want you to let each of one, each one of you lay something aside and, and don't wait until I get there. As in, this is something you make a decision ahead of time that you're going to prioritize. So Paul says we should prioritize giving to the work of the kingdom, not for our own blessing, but, but for the kingdom's gain. Again, first day of the week, put something aside, store it up. The idea is that we take something off the very top. That should answer the question whether it's net or gross, right? Off the very top. Now this is back to the Old Testament idea of first fruits offerings. The offering was not just put into a deposit box, but it was put into the hands of those doing the work. Not for their prosperity, but so that they might further along the work and the progress of the ministry. Listen to the words from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The first fruits of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, the first fleece of your sheep. So this isn't just giving a little bit, right? This is, I want it off the top of every blessing that you have been given. That belongs to God. As in, you should see that as a blessing from God, the reason God gave it to you is to glorify him with it. So again, this isn't what's left over. This is the best of the best off the very top of what you've been given. Now, who's him? That's the priest. Now, I'll make, it, I'll make a point here in a minute, but he goes on to say, for the Lord your God has chosen the priest or the priesthood uh, out of your tribe to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his son. So you'll notice the, the tribe of Levi, you'll remember, they were not, they didn't own any land. They belonged to the temple. They belonged to the tabernacle. So they didn't get to have, they weren't given the option to have other jobs. They didn't make any money. They lived off what the temple brought in. And, and it was honestly for their, for their good, but also so that they might keep the ministry going. 
So this is not, you know, no people, some people might twist this into saying, give it to me, you know, and that's not what this is about. I don't want your money. It's not for me. This is for the work of the ministry. This is for the work of the kingdom. This is for the progress of the kingdom. But notice again, it's off the top. It's the first fruits. When the Bible talks about giving, when the Bible talks about offering, this is, it never allows for some impersonal cutting a check of what's left over. The Bible talks about giving in the sense of divesting yourself and making an investment in God. Your investment, your investment is what directs your heart. Because here's what I know, here's what you know. You're, in, you're investing your heart so that it would be like Jesus said that where your treasure goes, your heart will follow. Jesus commanded this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, when anybody with a microphone that ever stands up in front of you and that says and, and, and manipulates God's word into turning treasure in heaven into physical earthly blessings, they're lying to you. Listen, God blesses us. I'm very blessed. I've never wanted for nothing. God has took care of me, but I don't want his blessings to be just physical stuff because guess what happens to physical stuff? Moth destroys it and rusts it and people steal it, right? I'm not after physical stuff. I need what I need to get by so I can take care of my family and live a decent life, but I'm not, I don't want physical blessings because physical blessings don't last, right? Now, I know that destroys the whole wing of the prosperity gospel, but that's the reason that we need to preach this because that's a toxic wing of the church that we all can fall into. Jesus says, don't lay up your treasures on earth because they won't last. Invest in the heaven and lay up your treasure in heaven. And he says, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So what is Jesus' message here? That if you want to know where our heart is dedicated, follow the money trail. Right? If you want to know where our hearts are dedicated, look at the bank statements. Look at the receipts. Now, let me say this. 90% is a whole lot more than 10. As in, if we're just giving a little bit to God just to get him off our backs, that's not dedication. That's obligation. And that's not going to bless us. The point is, this is calling for much more than just a 10% of whatever post-tax income we have. This is calling for 100% of our lives off the top, the best, before anybody else gets their hands on it, being poured into God's work. See what, I see what I meant by this is harder to hear than hey, you should serve? Because <laughs> this is how Paul, this is how I know he was calling all of them to serve because he starts with the hardest thing. If you want to rededicate your heart, we've said this before, reallocate or redirect your treasure because your heart goes where your investments are. If you've ever invested money, you know what that feels like, right? Because whenever there's an up and down in the stock market, you, you wince when you open the, open the, the, the envelope to see how it's going because you feel a little bit of yourself hurting when you see the money go down. Because where your heart, where your treasure goes, your heart is with that treasure. So if your treasure is in heaven, your heart is in heaven. If your treasure is in the kingdom's work, your heart is in the kingdom's work. So what is the Bible calling for us to do? Give our whole heart to the work of the kingdom. 
He's not just calling for a financial investment, but he certainly is calling for that, but not just that. He's calling for us to serve ourselves. He says, again, verse number three, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So I'm not just wanting your money. I want somebody to go and serve the church in Jerusalem. I want somebody to serve the cause that they have or the need that they have. I'll take you with me. And then he says again in verse 13 and 14, I don't just want your support. I want you to be brave and be strong. I want you to do the work with love. What have we learned about love in 1 Corinthians? Is love is a verb. It's not just a feeling, oh, well, I love you. I'm praying for you. No, love is an action, right? Love is a, is a verb and it does and it acts and it gives and it ser- serves. So Paul shouts out many who live for the mission field. Timothy, Apollo, Stephanus, uh, again, Aquila and Priscilla. And I think this message, I think his message is that we would join them on this mission field. He says in verse 9 that there is an open door for him. I, I think if God opened a door for him, then I believe that God opens doors for us. Again, he's calling us to serve. He's calling us to, verse 16, submit to the work that the saints are doing and work and labor with them and they with us. So he's talking about us taking the opportunity to serve God, right? He starts with the hardest thing, maybe, that, that hey, I got to dedicate, I got to give money to this. But the reason why he wants you to give money to this is because he wants you to see how important it is, right? Your, your greatest investments, your greatest treasures are the ones you give the most attention to because you see the value of them. Here's what I know. When we start investing in the work and we start giving off the top and we start dedicating our hearts to the work, then we will start to feel the call to get involved ourselves. I truly believe that. Uh, put a bookmark here, and I want you to turn back with me. I want to look at two different texts, and they're two texts that you probably can quote by heart. But Matthew 28, Matthew 28, it's the Great Commission. To go ahead and spoil it for you, but you all know where we're going with this. Matthew 28, verse number 18 through 20. We all have heard this text before. I want to read it. I want you to see it with your own eyes, but I want to ask you a question when we get done with reading this text. That's very, I think it makes it pretty obvious. This is Jesus before he ascends to heaven, according to Matthew. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So when he says that, he's saying, hey, I'm the guy in charge. You should listen to me. And when somebody gets out of their own grave, I think they can say that, right? <laughs> I think they can demand that kind of respect, right? So Jesus says, hey, I've got all the authority in the world. So this is him saying, if you listen to one thing I've got to say, this is what I want you to listen to. Don't you think that's kind of what he's saying here? I've got all the authority in the world. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we believe that that last part of verse 20 is true for every Christian? He's with us always. So if that part is true, do we also believe that the commandment to go therefore and make disciples is to all Christians? Because you know how we do things, don't you? We'll say, well, God's with us all, but I don't know if we're all supposed to go and make disciples. That's for some people. That's for preachers and evangelists. No, that's not, that's not how it is, right? 
We can't slice and dice verses like that. Jesus, Jesus says, hey, all authority is mine. I'll make your promise. I'll never leave you. I'll always be with you. But I'm giving you a commandment. Go and be evangelist. Go and make disciples and see them join your church and become a member of your church. That's what those the message there. So we can agree that Jesus' command in this passage is to all of us, right? Now flip over with me again back to, to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, it might be the same account but told a different way or it could be Jesus giving, it, giving another similar message prior to his ascension, prior to him going to heaven after he's raised from the dead. He told the disciples, wait in Jerusalem and you'll receive power from on high. And he says in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, do we believe that every Christian receives the Holy Spirit when they're saved? Yes. So we know verse 8 is talking to us so far, don't we? Therefore, he says, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So you start where you are at and you go broader from there. Because they were in Jerusalem and they were to go broader from there, Judea, Samaria, than the rest of the world. So if we believe that the Spirit of God is given to all of us, then we also believe that we are all called to be witnesses. You see what we're doing here? We're all called to be evangelists. We're all called to be witnesses. Now, after that, the Bible says that he was taken up from them, in verse 9, into a cloud. And while they were looking steadfastly, two men or two angels stood by them in white apparel and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand up gaze, standing here gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So what is the message? Get to work, right? Get to work. So we are all called to be witnesses, not just sometime, but all the time. How do, we get, how do we begin our journey as witnesses? Well, we start investing in the work that those, are, those that are already being done. We start investing in the church. We start investing in the kingdom. But we don't stop there. We start participating in whatever way we might find possible for us. And we start working from there, chipping away from there. Again, we are called to be witnesses at all times. Not, there's not an asterisk that says only when we're wearing the witness shirt, only on Sundays, only at certain times of the week. No, that, that's what hypocrites do. Paul is very matter of fact. We are, about, we are to support the mission and we are to serve the mission. Now, we're going to close and, and this, this might be a little bit, a little bit uh, more uncomfortable than the previous conversation, but we've got to have it. Notice in chapter, back in 1 Corinthians 16, if you want to look there again, you can, but, but it's pretty obvious we've already read it. Notice he doesn't start this passage off by saying, I want y'all to pray about something. I want you to pray about giving and supporting the mission. Does he do that? No, what does he do? He tells them what to do, right? You know what the Bible Never says. The Bible never gives us a command and then says, pray if that applies to you. Does it? The message here isn't we should pray about it. The message is we should do it. Now I'm picking on us, but we're so bad at this, aren't we? We're so bad about this. You ever heard, you ever heard someone talk about quenching the Holy Spirit? Well, let me tell you the way we do it so many times a week, so many times a day. 
God brings something to us, and the Bible says we should do it, and our response is, well, let me pray about it. And the church has taught us to do this. Shame on me if I've ever said, hey, you should pray about it, because I should say you should do it. But because sometimes we're scared to say that, we, we, fan, we fan this flame. Now, I don't think I do that a lot, but if I have, God forgive me. But we do that, don't we? We say, well, let me pray about it. Again, I'm picking, I'm beating, I'm preaching to myself here, but I think it all hits all of us. You know what I pray about it is code word for? It's let me try to figure out how to weasel my way out of this without feeling bad about it. Right? <laughs> let me give you an example. The book of Joshua, the story of Israel getting established as a nation, there's a story where they are full of pride as a nation. And they go into battle without consecrating themselves spiritually. They go into battle without getting everybody's heart right with the Lord. They go into battle without everybody bringing their, full, uh, bringing their possessions before God and devoting themselves to God. There's people holding back from God. Uh, and there's people that are just outright ignoring the call that he's given them to bring everything forward and surrender it to God. Um, and Joshua knows it. Joshua, as the leader, he knows that there's some people in the, in the nation that are not doing what they should do. And he doesn't confront them. And they go into battle anyway, and they get their tails kicked. And they're devastated. And it's obvious what happened. God told them what was going to happen if they didn't do it the right way. Yet, instead of getting their heart right with God, instead of coming to God and saying, God, we messed up, we bring everything to you, we want to do it right this time, the Bible says that Joshua and the elders start praying for God to supernaturally defeat the enemy for them. And that sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds spiritual. Oh God, this battle is too big for us. Could you just wipe our enemy out for us? <laughs> and you know this is the only time in the Bible where God interrupts a prayer. Joshua had a good prayer going. And God says, get up. Why are you praying? Why are you praying? You know what's wrong. Israel sinned. They've not obeyed me. I commanded y'all to do a certain thing and you didn't do it. You know what's wrong. This isn't time to pray, Joshua. This is time to act. Can I say that we often pray about things that pray about things we should do or not do when we know the Bible has made it clear what we should do already? One area the Bible is crystal clear on is missions and evangelism. Our lives are always to be poured out for the sake of the gospel. We are to always see ourselves as evangelists, our daily path as a mission field. If we don't have this attitude first, we will never be prepared to take the extra step when God opens a door that's extra important for us to, to, to walk through. We'll be unprepared for his guidance and see where he's taking us and we'll think, well, he's just suggesting, but he's not suggesting, he's commanding. Listen, missions and evangelism are not suggestions. They are duties, but they're not, they're not only duties. They should be our desire as a Christian. If we're going to pray about something, it's not whether we should, but it's that God make us motivated and more mindful of what we must do. Again, the Bible, the commandments are not optional. There's no mention in the Bible about uh, praying if they apply to us. The Bible commands us to pray so that we might obey. The Bible says this is what you should do. Pray that you don't consider it an option. Pray that you have a desire and a heart of passion to do what God's called you to do. 
as in pray for God to push us past our inhibitions and past our fears and past our excuses. This is what Paul prays for this church in Ephesians. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So he prays for them to be full of their potential as this whole book has been about. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to the glory in the church. So what is God's will that we be filled with our full potential, that we might be obedient to his work, that we have a greater capacity. And the most important thing that should be on all of our list is evangelism and missions from supporting to participating. But listen, Jesus made it very clear. The spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. He's saying, hey, God's always willing, but you aren't always willing. That's, hey, we can agree with that, can't we? That's what's wrong with me. God's always willing, but we are weak. That's why Paul begins this chapter by saying, Make investments, make investments. If you invest, your heart will follow. He gets right out the gate and says, invest and participate, invest and participate. It begins by making intentional investments, prayerfully, financially, and then physically. If we do this, God will begin opening doors for us to make impact in people's lives in the church's sphere of influence. Paul speaks of a door being open for him. And that, that's verse nine is such a big verse if you wanna underline that and highlight that because I think that applies for all of us. A great and effective door is open for me that can be your verse. That means God is not calling for us to walk between a narrow path that we might miss. He's making it plain and obvious what his calling is for us to do. Is that how you read that verse? I think that's pretty clear. A great or a wide door for effective ministry. As in, he's not trying to pull one fast by you. He's not going to get you in heaven one day and say, did you not see that little crack in the wall? No, it was a wide door. You, you could not have missed it unless you just weren't looking, right? Unless you just weren't investing. I want to give you a, a couple things, though, about these doors as we wrap up. The doors that God opens, some of them he will carry us through. But most of them, we must walk through them on our own. Do you understand that? God opens the door, but we've got to be obedient and walk through them. Sometimes God just cracks the door open and you got to push it the rest of the way because it's not going to be easy. What does he say? It's many adversaries. There's things working against us. But don't bail because the door is heavy. <laughs> Ministry's hard. Y'all know that. Pray for people for, for a week and that doesn't always change things. But God did the greatest heavy lifting, hasn't he? Jesus carried the cross, but what are we carrying? What are we bearing? Revelations 3, 8, Jesus said, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So this door is open. This is your door to walk through. Will you begin considering the work that God has called you to do? And that's really this whole book. This whole book has been about being a part of the church. And Paul's invitation as he signs off is, will you help me build it bigger and greater beyond what it is now? So three questions. Are you investing 
in the kingdom's cause. Listen, y'all are here on a Wednesday night. You're investing a lot more than a lot of people. I get that. And God bless you for it. You will no wise lose your reward. But keep investing your time, your money, your heart, and your prayers. Keep investing because the work requires continual, persistent investments. Are you seeking after the opportunities that God says he will give you? Are you being an intentional witness every single day? And are you walking through those doors that God opens for you? If your heart is invested, your eyes will be intently observing. One last thing. Y'all know this, in the Old Testament, there's a promise where God says to the people of Israel, if y'all give to me, I'll pour out my blessings on you that you won't be able to handle them all. Listen, that was a promise made to Israel and they had nothing but the land they were on. They knew nothing beyond that. Now listen, do I believe that promise applies to us? Yes, God will take care of you. If you give to his kingdom, he'll bless you back. But listen, I'm glad there's more than that. You know what the greatest blessing that you can ever receive is? Being a part of the mission field for Jesus. You know what, the, you know what greater blessing than a physical thing we can put on our shelf is? A soul that we lead to Jesus. That's the greatest blessing you can ever have, right? And here's what God says, try me. You bring your life to me. You invest in me. You pour yourself out for me. You dedicate your life to me and see if I don't open up the windows of heaven and pour out more than you can even know what to do with. There'll be more doors open that you won't even know how to walk through them all. And it's not your job to walk through all of them. It's your job to walk through the one God opens in front of you. You want to serve God? You want to be blessed? You want to have all that you need in him? Start investing. Start seeking. Start witnessing. Start pouring your heart out for his kingdom because he says, I will open up the windows, I will open up the doors and you will find a blessing that is so much better. Listen, you know what happened to Paul for living for Jesus? Got his head cut off. You know what happened to Timothy? Was martyred. Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, all of them killed for the being missionaries for Jesus. It was worth it, wasn't it? It's always worth it. One thing we've learned, we are members of his body, but let's be participants and let's be missionaries in his field. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Lord, thank you for challenging me out of my comfort zone. Lord, my mission field is not just this pulpit on a certain time of the week. Lord, my mission field is out in the world. That I, I need to be bold and brave and faithful that I not just be witnesses whenever it's safe and comfortable, but that I might be witnesses for you, a witness for you all the time whenever I otherwise am clocked out. Lord, help me to prioritize investing in your kingdom. Help me prioritizing witnessing for you that I might pay attention to the doors you're opening for me, that I might see the joy and the blessing at being a part of something that's so much bigger than I have settled for. Lord, thank you for what 1 Corinthians has taught us, that we are a part of the church. We are members of the body and you have given us the invitation to be participants on the mission field. Lord, here I am, here we are. Send us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.